Frank, 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 Frank. If there was more Franks, then we would have multiple microservices of Frank Krueger's all over the world. See how I brought that all together into the topic that you really wanted to talk about today, Frank? See what I did there? See what I did? You did something. I, I do have a topic I want to talk about, but you used a word I desperately don't like and kind of kept me away from this topic for a long time. And so now I'm a little freaked out. So I feel like I have to do a little debunking, which I feel like will come back at me and people say, nope, Frank, you really just don't get it. <laughs> well, this is really good because surprisingly, like my team at Microsoft, we've been kind of trying to focus in on specific topics to like kind of like do an audit and do some pr- promotion and things around it. And, and surprisingly this month, I, I kid you not, you did not know this is microservices. Last month was web API and this is like internal, like how my team has been working. And, and we did like a uh, Jamie and, and, and Cecil just did this big, let's learn event for.net where they like kind of brought it back to the Oh five one, like what is a web API? What is rest, right? All these things. And you brought something to me very early on a second ago, which was, I want to talk about Docker compose, which is, which is like a file of Docker, which is like a very specific thing, which Mm -hmm. most people would say that bubbles into the world of microservices and microservices is our theme of the month for March, March for microservices. We didn't plan it that way, but it totally happened. And, um, I've been working with Nish on my team, uh, Nish and Neil, who's been actively really collaborating on helping people get into microservices because, there's a lot of different technology out and around microservices and I've demoed it before, but at the same time, I never really understand what's going on. Cause you got, you got Docker, you got like instances, you got containers, you got like Kubernetes, you got like all these things and they're all kind of different, but connected, but not necessarily related to each other. So I don't think we're going to talk about all those things because you just wanted to talk about a file called the Docker Compose file, Frank. (laughs) But uh, I wanted to kind of set it up because I'm actually really excited. I've never been more excited because just coming off of learning a lot about web API, there's sort of a natural fit for microservices and Dockerization and things like this. So I'm really excited about this. And I'm pretty sure you probably didn't want me to deep dive into the world of all of the things in and around microservices, Frank. But I'm excited about this topic. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm trying to say, Frank, in the last two and a half minutes of me talking, I'm excited to talk about this topic and welcome everyone to Merge Conflict. This is a podcast where we get really excited to talk about stuff that we're doing in real life. Boom. Boom. Intro complete. (laughs) Um, I think we'll talk about most of the things that you said, except probably not Kubernetes, because although I have a vague understanding of it it hasn't like i haven't built anything with it so i don't want to talk about it because i'm just going to be repeating some promotional stuff but we are here to talk about docker and docker compose why james why in the world would we talk about them we're mobile developers we're going to talk about them because we keep having to put up websites we've talked about in the past for one reason or another we keep putting up websites uh to support our apps to do whatever all that stuff um And my current happy spot, roughly, is do .NET new uh, web app or whatever it is, and then upload that somehow to Azure. And that's a really nice, happy place to be. But I do have a background of building websites and servers, and I kind of enjoy it. 
But the parts of that that I don't enjoy are maintenance and remembering how to recreate things. And that's why when Docker, just Docker, came out, I became very interested because, well, we'll review how you see Docker, but I saw Docker as this wonderful way to recreate machines uh, that are exactly to my specifications without me having to keep um, random servers of images and weird virtual machines around. It was an incredibly elegant solution to create a machine with a file. How do you feel about Docker files? Yeah, well, when I think about you know Docker images and containerizing applications, I feel exactly the same way. I think the sales pitch of saying to say, hey, what we're doing is we're bundling up all of the dependencies that it takes to run your application, including the operating system, right? Including the whatever, the runtimes, everything that you need. And we're bundling that into the small little image that you can take anywhere with you. And you can run it locally. You can run it in Azure. You can run it on Docker. You can run it on AWS. You can run it where you want to run your own machines or anything that you want to do. And what this means is that you can freely move things around easily without having to have something that's, you know, pre-built that is going to be out. It's like, if this is the thing, like if you can run a Docker image, then you can run my application. That, that's what it, that's what it really says. So the, for the long term, you're not relying on other infrastructure. You are, you are in control of your own infrastructure. And I think that is an important sales pitch to creating microservices and dockerizing those microservices or just dockerizing an application, right? A microservice is just, um, to me, a microservice is just a bunch of my services split up into smaller chunks, basically, instead of having a mega app, you know, you could just have smaller pieces that are, you know, deployed separately. But again, you can just have one mega app and you put that in a Docker image, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, you know, for I'm just realizing that a part of this just comes down to packaging of apps, kind of. And I always think about how that was always a hang-up for me. I was always programming language curious. I would use all sorts of different systems. But then I would realize whatever app I built in this, I had no idea how to package it up, like turn it into an EXE that, you know, you could give to someone else or sell and or those kinds of things. I Packaging has always been an issue. And I, I like how you phrased all that because it just occurred to me. Yeah, I, I didn't think of it as packaging, honestly. I thought of it as reproducing a server, uh, quickly being able to spin one up. And with the cool, clever way they did it, um, you can recreate dev environments too. So that was always been an issue. <laughs> I used to be a PHP developer. Can you believe it? And you would never have an identical version of PHP as what was running on the server or, um, well, security things too. But I want to go beyond the Docker file now to kind of what you were saying. A web application is kind of boring as a single server. Technically, you can put a million different things on it, but I think we've all learned that a good web application, you kind of split your database <laughs> from your front-end server. Or maybe you put a reverse uh, proxy on the front-end so that you can do load distribution. It turns out that a single website 
is this complex cacophony of different servers all communicating with each other. And that was the point in web development where I said, I'm out. This has gotten way too complicated. I am never doing web development ever again. And I think what I love most about Docker Compose is it enables me to build those kinds of complex scenarios without being a DevOps person, basically. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that that is a, a great point is that the the bundling of this application and spinning this up, like normally DevOps is like, I need to also ensure that I have all these dependencies and everything is set up correctly and all these other things are set up uh, are really an elegant, you know, orchestration of doing that. But if you can get it into an image and into a container, um, then you're good to go. And I'm using all these words. I'm probably using them out of context because again, earlier I literally was talking to Nish and I was like, I need, I need a, a website. Like I need a website <laughs> that says here are all the parts of the, the world of microservices. Right. And he's actually working on right. a new learn module, Microsoft learn module. And this, I'm like, I need to understand like, what is Docker? What is a container? What is an image? What is a file? What are these, what is the, the all these things? Because Docker is a company and a piece of technology, you know, in, in general, but it's also sort of the basic building blocks of this containerization, uh, technology, I would say. Um, and they have a hub, right? There's, there's hubs in which you store things. But I think what's fascinating is you're right. It's a dev environment. So when you look at that Docker file that you created, um, you know, which is this, this Docker file, this Docker you know, script, it literally says, um, please go use, let's say ASP.NET 5, right? It's like, please go use the ASP.NET 5 image or whatever from the internet that Microsoft is hosting and you suck that down and it's like, okay, like here's the tool chain that I need to build and run this application and puts it inside of there. And like you said, you could then emulate that to say, Hey, if my application can run even in a container with these dependencies, I know it's going to run on .NET 5, .NET 6, .NET, whatever version of .NET, you can have these infinite scrolling of configurations of your application to ensure that it's going to run in all those places. And I think you're right. Like when it comes to Python, for example, which I learned is fascinating to code in because there are these environments, which to me, these environments were basically Docker images. Like you would, you have a bunch of different versions of Python installed, but you need to have this like little instance. It's almost like a clone of, to say like, here, I'm going to run this app in this environment. And to me, that was like, basically I'm running inside of a Docker image and I could be wrong <laughs> in the terminology, but, you know, talking in our Python, which again, just like microservices, I basically know nothing about Python either. <laughs> no, it's fun because I mean, there are, there are similar technologies trying to accomplish the same goal. It's just that uh, Dr. Docker <laughs> is the sledgehammer to uh, Pip's virtual environment, little hammer, little chisel hammer. So maybe we should take a sec and go really high level and define some of these terms really quick, just to make some sense of it all. So a container is just this concept of a sandbox, which we're familiar with um, being mobile app developers, where your code is going to execute in a really 
controlled environment. Mm -hmm. And it's so controlled that basically there's nothing there to start with. <laughs> and that's called a container. <laughs> and the container creates uh, um, a new namespace in Linux parlance that says basically what hardware is available, what things are available. And the default containers are basically nothing's available. You're just a little server. Good luck, little buddy. So that's all a container is. It's just a sandbox. And Docker, although it is a trademark hashtag copyright company, it, it the concept of a container is somewhat universal at this point. It's more of an, uh, an idea. And so the standard containers out there are these Linux containers. Mm -hmm. But you can have a Windows container. Technically, you could have a Mac container. I think someone's done a Mac <laughs> container, but no one uses those. Um, some people use Windows containers, but the common ones are Linux. And what does that mean? Um, it means that they import some version of a Linux kernel to execute a little bit. Not necessarily the full kernel, because you are running under another operating system, but bits like that. The real big revelation that uh, Docker gave on top of this container concept was that they have the Docker Hub, that server out there that gives you very easy access to images to execute. Correct, yeah. So I like the .NET website, and I'll put a link to this because I'm pretty sure Nish wrote this, but maybe he didn't. But whoever did, it's, it's great because it really summarizes what you just said in a single sentence really well. Because if you didn't know what a container was, I think that this is the ultimate sentence. And I, then I want you to to see if you agree or not, Frank, because it's, it's pretty much what you just said, but it's containers combined an app plus its configuration and dependencies into a single independently deployable unit. Yes. With one caveat, I would like to add, but yes, that is an excellent, uh, yes. Paraphrase of everything I just said. Well said. <laughs> Can I get What's my caveat? Ca yeah, I want to know your caveat. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. The caveat is one container, think of it as one server. Mm. Although on one actual computer, you could run many containers simultaneously, 100%. But conceptually, it's, in my mind, a server. It's a thing that has some ports. It has an IP address, IP6, IP4. It has a DNS entry. It's a server. Uh, in fact, they're usually called services, server services. Mm -hmm. So the one caveat I would give is that services often need to talk to each other. So mm. you are depending, you are bundling all your software dependencies, but you might still have external dependencies that are unsatisfied. That's correct. Yeah, that makes sense. Because also you're right, you're, you may often be running, like you said, multiple containers right and you have multiple apps and an advantage to that by the way i think of it as like this is there's an advantage to writing these microservices and putting your apps in containers because you can do things side by side with other stacks too right so you could for example um have dotnet microservices that are mixed with node.js or java or go those could be in their own individual containers or you could have multiple in the same container right as long as you're like i'm going to use this microservice with this Java thing, you could kind of mix these pieces of technology together, or you can really, like you said, break those down where you might have like 25 different Python services, but they all might be running different versions of Python. And that's going to be a nightmare to try to manage on a single machine. This sort of gets rid of that problem. 
Yeah, absolutely. And now enter Docker Compose. So what Docker Compose allows you to do is actually list out all your services, all your servers, and reference the Docker file or the image, you know, whatever. You could just pull an image straight off of Docker Hub or, you know, Microsoft servers, whatever, and then tell it an entry point, an environment, a network name, and what other services it depends on. So this is getting to that higher level. So if you think of your Docker file in your container as one server, one service, then your Docker Compose file lets you list out all the services and their dependencies on each other. And this is the point, James, where I just fell absolutely madly in love because this changes everything for how I wanted to design websites from now on. Okay, okay, okay. So let's get this let's get this right because I've been talking a lot about the Docker file, which is yes. a definition of the application's environment. So which is to say to say, hey, this application runs, you know, .NET five and it's running this executable, right? Yeah. yeah. And then the Docker Compose defines the services that make up your application, so they can run together um, in an, in this isolated environment that you've created. Yeah. Why don't I give an example of, I would consider this kind of a minimum website Docker Compose Mm -hmm. out there. So these are the services I include. So I have a web service, which um, is just called web, and it references a Docker file that includes .NET Core, some version of it, who knows. (laughs) So I have a web service. I have a database service. And with the simplicity, because you can just download images off of uh, Docker Hub, I can say database colon, image colon, Postgres colon, latest. And through the magic of the internet and 2016? Oh, 2020. I don't know, whenever this stuff came out. That is so magical. It just goes out there and gets the image, uh, starts the instance. Then I have another one um, that I call the backup service, which just from time to time, queries the database server and makes a backup. And then I have one last server, a proxy server, which is an Nginx reverse proxy server, which is just doing a little bit of light caching and things like that, and uh, throttling, you know, those kinds of things. And that, again, is just an image off of Docker Hub. So I don't have, I didn't even have to write a Docker file. I just pulled the one straight Mm. off of the server. And with just those very few lines of code, I have a proper full functioning website with all DNS work in between them. And not only that, one that I can bring up multiple instances of, call this a cluster if we must. <laughs> I've been trying to avoid that term, but you know, your, your group of services, you can uh, bring that up on a dev machine and you can bring that up on a really real server. And I think it's magical. Yes, um, you are getting into the... The Kubernetes of the world. We haven't said it yet. We're, I want to see how much longer we can go without bringing it up. <laughs> it, it, it's fun because I, oh, I, I, you know, it, this is actually really crazy that you're t- talking about all this because last week, last week or two weeks ago, again talking with Nish, um, he really wanted feedback on these we, we these two online tutorials on the .NET website, and there's two tutorials. One is create your first microservice, which literally is doing what you're talking about. So it you install, um, it, it's really nice. You install Docker um, on desktop, right? Mm-hmm. You create your service as like a little web API. 
Uh, Which I should be clear. I just want to, because I said before, Mac Linux, if you install Docker on Mac, it installs a virtual machine so that all the Linuxes work. So it's it's Mac friendly. Ooh. Also, I will tell you this, though. On Windows, it is a delight because Windows has the Windows subsystem uh, for Linux, the WSL. Windows subsystem for Linux and WSL2, which is the latest version, which Docker desktop, which is the Docker desktop application that lets you kind of deploy and test your images locally. Um, it will automatically configure WSL2 for you, which means you don't need Hyper-V. It is running natively on Linux on your machine. So there's no emulation in it because it's running Linux. It's just in there. Yeah, it, it, it's such magic. I remember back in the day, they've always had the Unix subsystem, but when they got the Linux subsystem, that's when things got really interesting over there. Yeah. I will say it runs fine on Mac too, but yeah, oh, yeah, good, yeah, good, yeah. good for you, Windows. <laughs> well, I would say like, that's the nice thing is like before you had to have Hyper-V and you had all these other things, which are fine. It just was like more dependencies and more things. Yeah. And it was kind of a pain if you're a mobile developer, because you're like, oh, Android stuff, whatever. But anyway, so you, you run through this and you run it. And then the next step is to deploy that to Azure and that then creates like a Docker hub thing. You tag your images, you like create a cluster of on AKS, which is Azure Kubernetes services, I think. And, you know, these are all the words that is still to, to my day. Nish can explain it to me over and over again. Um, I still don't understand. Um, but one day I hope to Frank, that's what I really <laughs> Well, I, I want to defend Docker Compose just a little bit more before I talk about its difference with uh, Kubernetes, because they are accomplishing roughly the same goal here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what the neatest part of all of this, and and they use a similar file format, so all of this applies across all of this, is this is like open source software distribution model kind of done right because it's not this weird world i i grew up in you get a new server you log into it you change a million config files you create a backup of it in case you ever have to replicate that server and move it over uh this world of defining everything in a text file especially a text file that i can check into github has just been so impressive for me. I think one of the coolest hacks that you can do with it is that you are actually recreating the production environment on your dev machine. So things that I used to run into in the past when making websites is uh, like throttling and things where on the production server, I would have a proxy up front that rate limited people. But then in the dev environment, I would never bother or I wouldn't configure that because it would be too hard to set up in your dev environment. But the neat thing is you create this one little text file. You go to your command line, you type the words Docker Docker compose up. I think that's right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) I actually write a script to do most of these things. And just magically that environment is brought up. You might have to futz around a little bit. changing um, port numbers and things like that, but they have a Docker Compose override file specifically for uh, creating dev environments. But the neat effect is I no longer have any difference between my production server and the one on my machine. And so I can really actually tune that front-end proxy server instead of just taking the defaults like I normally do because it's too hard to test you know, on production. 
so it's really transformative in that regard. I feel comfortable bringing up multiple servers now where I never did in the past. Nice. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that that is a, a good, good point. Well, when, whenever I think more servers, I think more costs too, at the same time, right? Cause you're like, I'm gotten this environment and that environment. And technically it's really not about the environment anymore. It's about just running and orchestrating these little, little images, little containers. Yeah. Okay. So now let's actually talk about servers, though, <laughs> because okay. the way I've been using this is these are just containers running on the same machine. And it's still a good way to break up your code. Specifically, like you said, I might have one piece of code running .NET 5, another piece of code running Mono, who knows, you know, and it's just simpler if they live on two different containers. Where uh, Docker comp pose is not as good as kubernetes and yeah i think whatever whatever isn't there an open source version of kubernetes whatever who cares kubernetes is you can actually say how many machines to devote to these containers mm -hmm. uh how those machines should be networked together uh how to hot swap <laughs> one cluster into another cluster so it's almost like we're just keep building up this hierarchy with docker files we start with the server, the container, <laughs> but see, service, I should say, the service, the container. Then a Docker Compose could be how all these services talk to each other. Then Kubernetes is more like, here I have a bunch of machines, <laughs> and I want to describe how to distribute this app over a bunch of machines. I would say, honestly, that second Kubernetes step is really not necessary up front. Uh, a little a little virtual machine running in Azure can handle all these services just fine. Mm -hmm. But it's nice to know that this technology scales up to that crazy Kubernetes level if you need it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. I just, I, I, I keep, I was stressing the if there because like all of these conversations, everyone jumps to Kubernetes, James. And it's mm -hmm. just, it's, too complicated like it's uh, not too it's over complicated you just don't need it under most circumstances so especially if you're like a indie dev <laughs> putting up yeah. a website i feel like it's um there's there's like basically this jump into the advance right away because if at some point you may get there, right? So it's like, oh, everyone's talking about Kubernetes. So you got to learn about the Kubernetes, get out there. And I know that you can also run like a single instance, like there's con Azure container instances, I think, which is like, hey, just go run this thing. But I think that because microservices lend to the point of running multiple at the same time, I think that's why people often go to the Kubernetes as a, you should need, need to learn this like, at the beginning almost, which I think that some it's almost too confusing to some developers, AKA myself, because I'm just like, I just learned how to get this one thing in this thing. And then why am I putting this thing into like an, an orchestrator thing? Like I need to understand the full story, which would be, Hey, I want to, you know, build multiple things and then figure out how they talk to each other. Oh, I got to need to put them in this orchestrator thing because I need to know the IP addresses of the other thing. Right. Cause like if I create a web API and it does 20 things. Well, they can all talk to each other because they're all running on the same server. But if 
they're in if they're all independently in 20 different little images then they need to figure out how to communicate with each other and i think that's where kubernetes comes in is that right is that wrong uh compose does that also okay truly all kubernetes gives you is saying what kind of hardware the stuff is going to run on Mm, okay it's it's kind of like and, and I'm even being a little hesitant because I think Docker Compose has a way to run on different hardware also. Mm. And you can certainly remote deploy also. So if there's a cluster out there, you can, you know, push yourself up to it. But I think that that is a fundamental part of Docker, in fact, is how it handles networking mm. and resolving all those names and things. And certainly it becomes more complicated in Kubernetes where you're dealing with the added abstraction of clusters and being able to move things around like that. So it's really just levels of complexity and orchestration. I don't want to use that word. I don't like, <laughs> I don't like that word. You orchestration. Got, you got it into my head. You got I'm it. sorry. I did it. It <laughs> happened. Uh. No, um, but I, I just want to stress that I think everyone can start out with this small version of it and stay within the small version and really have a lot of fun. I have been doing so much with it, even on places where you wouldn't think I need it. So on Raspberry Pi, which is usually, you know, it's a simple little computer. You don't need advanced orchestration on it. I'm not trying to run services on it. But I still use Docker on it constantly because I get to specify the exact version of .NET I want on there. I don't have to worry about it magically updating. Or even if I do update the operating system, I know my containers will still run on it just fine. Uh, Docker has some other neat things that we haven't talked about, which are volumes, where you can magically just create these volumes and Docker manages them and you can clone them and copy them around very easily things like that. I also use it for training my neural networks because it turns out every single neural network out there requires a different version of Python and a different version of drivers and this and that. And so for every single neural network out there that I want to train, I create a Docker file because that is life now. <laughs> Versions. Versions. That I think that is what it really ends up solving is versions, all of the versions simplified. It's true. It's true. And I've learned lessons over the years too. Like in my Docker files, I would just install some Python packages, like for the neural network. And you would say pip install, blah, blah, blah. And then I learned, oh boy, there's actually not a version there. And although I got lucky building that container one day, I came back to it to build that container again because the files disappeared, but whatever. It's a text file. I can rebuild it. And it failed to build. Mm -hmm. I had defeated the whole purpose. The whole point of this thing is reliable builds over time, over space, (laughs) you know, at different times on different computers, time and space, I guess. And it failed. The lesson learned there was lock your version numbers down. So instead of saying, I'll take any version greater than 1.0, say, no, I want version 1.0.1. It becomes a little more annoying in the future when you want to update packages. You have to manually update those versions yourself. But in the long run, um, you need it in order to not defeat yourself so that that package can run for eternity. And I've actually been thinking about that with um, my .NET projects. I'm like, I should lock down all my NuGets. This this whole thing gets you into like version lockdown mode. 
Well, yeah, I was just about to actually bring talk about NuGet with version locking because I feel like we install um, specific versions of NuGet packages. The dependencies become a little tricky, I think, um, usually because the NuGet. Maybe that's what you're talking about. It's like the NuGets. We often say, "Oh, use version of Newton Soft JSON 12 or you know 10 and above," and then you know that's the dependency that it has or whatever like that. Like when we go to install them, we we pick very specific versions. But I actually wrote the Microsoft Learn module on dependencies, and you can do crazy things in your CS proj and define all sorts of mins and maxes, and you know have it auto select the latest one, which like nobody does like by default normally because if you use the package yeah. installer, it it adds a version number. But I have, it's hard. I've I've used to be a fan of like installing very specific versions of dependencies and things like this. But then with Android, it just becomes a pain in the butt. There's just too many, uh, you know? Well, you, you don't have to do it for all of them. So like for the Android support libraries, which is, I assume is what you're talking about because they're terrible. Um, you could do it for everything except those. True. And I, and I kind of like it. I think the default in .NET is that they give you the minimum version that they can from the transient dependencies. So if you say 1.0, but you depend on someone who depends on 2.0, you'll get 2.0. Mm-hmm. You won't get 5.0 that might exist. So that's the default. But like you said, there is like a whole ASCII art little min-max language you can put into your CS proj to change that behavior. I never do. I think I'm going to change it to be locked at a one specific version because you know if it's working it's working i don't need to update <laughs> you do have that problem sometimes it's a it's a bitter bittersweet you know balance because you know if someone then wants to use a newer version which has a new thing then you're like okay i've seen a lot of people lock down the major number mostly and just do that like oh i feel good about hey i feel good about you installing any version of dotnet 5 like in my docker image that is done at five and you know, 5.0.x, you know what I mean? Maybe I don't feel comfortable with 5.x.o, you know, as, as doing the, the minor release. So it's sort of that, that, that balance of, of how much do you trust the maintainers to keep that consistency of the API? And this has been a long-term, you know, you know, thing. But again, if we talk about microservices, then it doesn't really matter because with microservices, you're bundling the entire environment up with very specific version numbers and it's just going to run if I bring it full circle. Right. But uh, that could introduce security issues. So, mm, that's a good point. you know, open SSL every other month, we got to find a bug in it. So mm. there are things that you should do exactly like you said. So you, you brought up a great point and that's probably what I'll do even more is lock that major version number. I think most people out there, as much as I hate semantic versioning, I think we all kind of obey it or at least try to obey it. So I think that's a good place to start. Major minor or just major. Oh, I was fighting this Python library, dude. It was, I was stuck on Python version 3.5, but however pip was working, it kept downloading transient dependencies that required newer versions of Python. So I would just have to run it, see the error, go to a website, 
scan through their old versions, figure out when they upgraded to Python 3.6, find the version before that, hard code that version in, and repeat that process like 10 times. Software. <laughs> so yeah, I remember I was, the Python stuff I was doing, they're like, oh yeah, create your little pip file and then just put the name of it. Like, I don't even know how to do versions. Like, because my pip file just yeah. is like a bunch of names. And I'm like, all right, I guess it's going to figure it out. Like, I don't even know how that's working. <laughs> like, that's the one thing that like kind of boggled me. I'm like, okay, like when does, when does it know to update the package? Like when I deployed my Azure function or like when it's running my Azure function, like did it cool down and cool then spin back up and it just installed a new dependency? Like I have no idea. Wow. So Azure functions, I would definitely lock the version then. Right. Cause that's very confusing. Yeah, who who know. knows? No so idea. like in the case of PIP, their default is the latest version. Yeah. Uh, but for NuGet, their default is the oldest compatible version. So mm. it's funny, the defaults out there. Boy. Well, and then isn't it like in Node.js, you can do like a little like up arrow, the little carrot and be like, that does oh. something else. I don't even know. I don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they all have it. So in Pit and Python, you use greater than and less than signs. Mm. So it's kind of nice. You say greater than 1.0, less than 2.0, and then you're good to go. I think in um, CSProj, they use square brackets and parentheses to differentiate between min-max, inclusive, exclusive. Yeah. I don't know. It's been a while since I looked at that part. And then, yeah, NPM has that up arrow. I have no idea what it means. <laughs> Nobody does. Uh, <laughs> Download the internet. That's what that means in NPM. Goodness. That is anytime you do anything in NPM. Well, what is your next adventure here, Frank, into the wild wild journey that you're on with your new microservices and dockerization of everything that you do well i want to learn how to put it up on the cloud so what i'm doing right now is old-fashioned frank i go get a virtual machine upon that machine i install docker and then i have my own fancy deployment scripts that took me absolutely forever to figure out how to do because modern ssh security is so complicated especially i did it all in github action so anyway long story short i want to learn how to deploy this stuff to the cloud which means i actually have to properly learn kubernetes mm. and how to define one of those clusters um wish me luck i really like docker compose i really don't want to learn kubernetes but pretty much every cloud service out there talks kubernetes so that's lingua franca you have to learn yeah you gotta you have to do it at some point i feel like that's the that's the plan ah so more learning will, will we ever do a kubernetes episode i, I don't think you'll let me <laughs> yeah we can do one once, once i know how it works i'll have to ask i need to, i need to go nish actually like wrote a bunch of learn modules and, and things like that i need to go take them and then learn the the concepts because I do think it applies really heavily to mobile development, like we've been saying, but also like all sorts of different development that you could be doing. So, and the more like I took the step into functions, I mean, I, I sort of, th I thought of functions as an entry, it's like a gateway into microservices because you're deploying bits of code that are magically being run on the server over here. And, but in this next step, it's like you're bundling everything up into into this image, right? Instead of just deploying your little code file up into the Azure function that has its own runtime and figure stuff out, you're like, oh no, here's everything in general. So um, 
it's nice in yeah. that regard because again, you're not relying on a service because if Azure Functions is like, hey, we're no longer going to support .NET, whatever .NET Core 1.0 or something like that. I don't know. Then I, I don't know how that works. <laughs> I don't know how that works. I have no idea. So, yeah, I, th I think that's why we all like images because we don't have to worry about how that works. The idea is just go download a bunch of this code and then it works. Yeah. I I think functions are nice, like good. They are a high level. And if you can get away with working at a high level, you absolutely should. No one wants to work with servers. I should preface all of this by saying I don't want to work with servers. <laughs> this is just making it much easier than it used to be. If I could get away with just um, some functions, I would. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. In a world where only functions existed. All right. Well, I think I was going to do it for our microservice. I would say like we're tippy-toeing into the, the, the microservices and Docker waters. Definitely excited to see what our listeners um, are into in this topic. Definitely give us some feedback. Go to mergeconflict.fm. You can write us an email. You can ping us on Twitter, hop in our Discord, anything like that. That'd be super awesome. You can also become a Patreon supporter. If you go over to mergeconflict.fm, there's a Patreon button up top and uh, you can support us. We release exclusive episodes every single week. They're like kind of top of mind, just random chitty chatter of stuff. Just yeah, random chatter is what we do. And it's quite fun. This week we talked about the DJI FPV drone, um, which is quite entertaining as well. You can again head to merchconflict.fm, become one of our supporters, or just you know, leave us some feedback. We would like it. But that's gonna do it for this week's merch conflict. So until next time, I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace. Peace.